Hello, friends. Welcome to episode one of Earmarks. This is a podcast show about out of print and hard to find books that I think you should read. Episode one, we're starting off strong with an Arthur C. Clarke novel. Yes, Arthur C. Clarke, entitled A Fall of Moon Dust. Since this is episode one, a brief overview of how the shows work. This is a sort of chill review show and is designed to be relaxing and interesting, not exciting. So there's that. Uh, you might get excited about the novels like I do, but that's okay. Um, what we'll do is I'll give a brief history of the novel and its publication and stuff, and then a brief spoiler free review. And then I will give a spoiler-filled review along with my criticisms and things like that. All of that will take place in the spoiler-filled because it's kind of hard to separate those. So this novel takes place on the moon, mostly, like you might suspect by the title, and was printed in 1961. The copy I have was printed for the Science Fiction Book Club in London in 1963. Absolutely beautiful book. It's got a lovely custom dust jacket. I think this cover might be my favorite that I've seen as well. It's just got circles, blue circles with like a mesh of white lines on them. The previous books in the book club and uh, the ability to sign up for further books from the book club on both of the inside jacket sleeves. Very minimal. It's very lovely. I like it quite a lot. And I think that it speaks a lot to the simplicity and the abstract ideas in this book i think it's a perfect book cover so uh to get into that first um a brief history of the book um this is a science fiction novel obviously it was published in 1961 when it was first published this book was pretty critically well received and interestingly it was nominated for a hugo award in the subsequent two years which i didn't know was a thing it was an honorable mention in the 1962 hugo awards and it was a finalist for winning in the 1963 Hugo Awards, which is interesting. I didn't realize that you could participate in the Hugo Awards years after your publication. Um, this was also adapted into a BBC radio drama, which if anybody has a lead on, I need it desperately. I need to hear that. That sounds freaking amazing. Originally printed in hardcover, and like most science fiction novels of the last 50 years was printed again every three or five years uh, up until its final printing in 2012 outside of specialty imprints. But the final publication of this book was in 2012. The majority of those prints were in the 1980s, the early 1980s, where most of the copies that were sold and most of the translations of the book that happened, that happened in the early 80s. This novel was published, you know, eight years, nine years before we actually landed on the moon. And as such, the, the main plot point and narrative structure of this book voices a singular fear that the world held before we landed on the moon, which was we weren't sure if you physically could. If you made surface contact with the moon, we weren't sure if it was just deep regolith and you would just sink down into the surface no way to physically land. We didn't know if it was solid rock or not at the time. 
And this book is kind of centered around that idea. Interestingly as well, because of its publication time, it has a really adorable mix of, um, frankly, really modern ideas and, and futuristic um, you know, structures and, and how uh, mechanisms work and space travel and things of that nature. But also, it has a delightfully 1961 grounding where a lot of the tech is really rooted in the 60s because you just didn't know how future tech was going to work. And that's adorable because at the time, that wasn't a distinction, right? It was just sci-fi future tech. But now we have this stark line of like stuff that feels really futuristic still and modern and stuff that is incredibly 1960s. Um, which, you know, at the time, that was not a distinction that could have been made. And that's one more reason that old science fiction is delightful to read. So let's get into the quick spoiler-free review. So you can dip out of here after this if you want to read this book before I get into the spoilers. A Fall of Moon Dust is an absolutely delightful novel. It is wonderful to read. Arthur C. Clarke is obviously a master. This is a well-known phenomenon, but this is not one of his well-known books. Fall of Moon Dust is a bit like a mix between The Martian and Twelve Angry Men, which sounds like a crazy juxtaposition, but actually this novel kind of fits right in between them. It's, it's a subtle one. It's not uh, intense. It's not overt, but it is kind of that. Um, it follows a small voyage cruise uh, aboard the Lunar Dust Cruiser named Selene on a sea of regolith outside one of the moon bases the that that sea is called the sea of thirst um drama ensues with and to the small um party on board and they must get to know each other work together to overcome the situation and you know drama and hijinks ensue um it sounds kind of generic which from like a thousand foot view it kind of is but you know it's a product of the time that this was written 60 years ago now um, so things that are generic now weren't quite so generic then. But also, that's what makes this book so lovely to read, um, because it has like a small scope. It is not a grand, universe-spanning, epic tale of, of cataclysm and heroism. It's not that. It is a small story that follows a small group of fairly well-defined and real people overcoming a single event and, and moving on with their lives, which is one of my favorite parts about this story in general. Uh, with every descriptor and line of dialogue, it is unbelievably clear that this is an, a work by Arthur C. Clarke. His narrative voice is crystalline in every single one of his works, and this one is no different. Like I said earlier, this, it's also extremely clear that this book was written before the moon landings. Um, there's lots of uncannily modern ideas and lots of adorably quaint old ideas uh, they're meshed and the reason they work is because when this was written that was not a distinction right there weren't old and new ideas here this was all new and fresh and modern ideas but now that 60 years has passed we can make that delineation and that for me just enhances the the delight of this novel of reading it so Suffice it to say, if you want to stop listening to this episode now and go read A Fall of Moondust, I highly recommend this novel. It is 
the perfect book as a palate cleanser. It's a small story, and it's, it slots perfectly in between large, you know, science fiction or fantasy series books, which is how I read it. I read it in between large, sprawling stories, and this is the perfect little palate cleanser. And I do not want to say more because it's a spoiler-free section. Read this book. It's great. Okay, let's get into the spoilers now, huh? This is your final warning. If you want to read this book and don't want it spoiled, leave now. Come back when you've read it. It's not a long book, so I expect to see you soon. Like I said at the end of that spoiler-free section, I find this book exactly what I needed when I'm feeling overwhelmed or burnt out or just too emotionally tired to deal with these long, intense narratives. And this is not an intense book. You follow mainly Captain Pat Harris, who's the captain of the ship Celine, as well as Commodore Hanstein, uh, Sue Wilkins, who is the stewardess on, on this particular endeavor. You also follow an Aboriginal Australian physicist named Duncan McKenzie. You also follow a doctor named Tom Lawson, who is stationed on a satellite at Lagrange Point 2. Um, he is the first to kind of identify what happened to the Selene and help the moon bases kind of gather resources and start making out there for a rescue. So what happened to Selene? Well, traveling on the Sea of Thirst, um, a gas pocket kind of bubbles up as they're making their way back and creates a, a kind of cave that they kind of sink into and get covered in this regolith dust, uh, stranding them and cutting off communications because radio waves can't make it through the dust, etc. So they're stranded out on the Sea of Thirst, buried in the regolith. So the plot of the novel, the overarching, the overarching arc of the story is this small crew of tourists and a, a couple of, of people at work on the ship are tasked with surviving this catastrophe and that's one of the things i love most about the story is it's it's you know a a group of people who have a catastrophic event happen on their vacation and they're just trying to survive it and go back home and continue on with their lives and real spoiler alert here they do it's a happy ending which is definitely my favorite part of this book there isn't a crazy amount of like high intensity drama people dying none of that like it's it is overall it's a happy ending everybody gets out alive everybody gets home to see their families and they get to put this effectively car accident behind them you know the the story is as quaint as if a, a tour bus you know crashed off the side of a road and they're stranded on the cliffside and they have to make their way back up and into town that's kind of the story but because it takes place on the moon there's a lot of complications there the happy ending and the low intensity of this novel is by far my favorite parts. It's not universe spanning. It's not universe ending. The stakes are extremely high for the passengers because it's life or death for them, but it's not extremely high for us, the readers. The stakes are medium drama. And that I think is the brilliance of Arthur C. Clarke here in that he just writes well a fairly dramatic situation that doesn't need to resort to what I think is kind of cliche and, and overblown in, in the modern sort of literary landscape. And that is like, the stakes have to be 211. And this book is not 211. This is a medium stakes book. And you don't have to worry about the rug getting pulled out from under you. 
for example, there is a um, a section of the book where uh, Commodore Hanstein, who is a absolute superstar of the universe, right? He's a military Commodore. He like led the the first um, voyage to Pluto. He's landed with crews on numbers of planets in in our solar system. But he's retired now, shaved off his iconic beard, and he's traveling incognito to start his retirement on the moon. He's just changing his pace, right? And his basically first sort of vacation post-retirement, this happens. So he kind of helps Captain Pat Harris sort of command the situation and prevent panic in the passengers, etc., um, which we'll talk about in a second. But among that, Captain Pat Harris and Commodore Hanstein both identify a potentially troubl- troublesome person who's really quiet or just behaving kind of like suspiciously. and because of the situation, it is high stress, right? You're, I immediately thought, oh man, this guy's going to start sabotaging the ship, or he's going to go crazy and start killing people, etc. As it turns out, a little bit later on, that situation comes to a head, and we find out exactly what's going on, and it turns out this person is just a conspiracy theorist. He thinks that this entire situation is his fault. Uh, because aliens are trying to silence him because he's getting too close. He's on the moon searching for some kind of secret and the aliens are getting too close. He's getting too close. Aliens are stopping him. And by stopping him, he just happens to have trapped a whole bunch of other people in this plot. My expectations were high because I'm, I read a lot of modern books and I expected, like I said, explosions or him to start murdering people or sabotaging their rescue attempts or what have you but as it turns out he's more just the you know conspiracy theorist that you find on the bus right maybe a little crazy maybe you know no big deal ultimately but the book is so well written and structured that the situation makes that a problem commodore hanstein and captain pat harris identified ostensibly just like a, a a conspiracy theorist on a bus, but because they understood the situation they were in more than the passengers did, they understood this is a extremely dire situation that we might all die. It's perilous. That makes the conspiracy theorist on the bus kind of red flag tingles in their mind extremely elevated. And as such, the reader's expectations are extremely elevated because we also know this is a crazy perilous situation and having somebody throw off some suspicious red flags is a big deal. Even though, obviously, it's just a bunch of tourists. They're like, yeah, it would just be some, some rando on a bus, like, being crazy. Like, it's not... The expectations are high, but the reality is just the group of tourists. Like, of course there wouldn't be some terrorist in this group. Like, that seems crazy now to say, right? But that's kind of the expectations that are being played with. And that shows the masterwork of, of this writing. This book is filled with well-written and good drama that's not intense. It is not a high-intensity dramatic book. It is just dramatic. And that's a, a point I keep coming back to because it's one of the most striking parts about this novel for me is so much of it feels delightfully modern with you know the tech ideas from the ship being liquid oxygen-powered and, and hyper-electric and etc. 
there's lots of that. There lots of really modern ideas, and Arthur C. Clarke's writing style is also very modern. But unlike modern books, this doesn't have to rely on high-intensity situations to keep me infatuated with it. I don't need to be on the edge of my seat. I don't need my blood pressure rising for this book to still be entertaining and wonderful. On the subject of, of kind of subverting modern expectations here, there's a portion of this book that I was surprised of, and it is almost basically the end, where a small fire weakened the ship in the back, and just as the rescue team got to them, it's touch and go for a bit, and everybody starts evacuating as the ship starts filling up with regolith because it's deep under and there's a hole, etc. Captain Pat Harris, being the captain of the ship, makes sure everybody else is off safely before he leaves. And I had thought, okay, this is it. Rug's getting pulled. Not everybody's making it out of the ship alive. Captain Pat Harris is going to get stuck and he's going to die down here. But he makes it out just fine. He like, It's not even really a struggle. He's just like, he takes a, a last glimpse and watches the sand or the regolith fill up and, and encase the, the light bulbs on the roof of the ship as he makes his way out. Like it's you know, maybe not as hastily as he probably should have, but it's not dire. He doesn't get his foot stuck on the ladder and get barely make it out alive. It's nothing like that. He just almost doesn't, right? It's just a, maybe took a little bit longer than he should have, and that created a little bit of stress for the reader. But he does make it out, and there's no rug pull here. It is drama without the caveats, right? There. I expected the rug to get pulled out from under us here and, and Captain Pat Harris to die and it be sad and dramatic. And I, I, like, I was feeling that anxiety, right? I felt anxious in this part because I expected to have the rug pulled out from under me, but I wasn't. He makes it out just fine and goes on, confesses his, his actual love that he realized to Sue Wilkins, and they get married and have kids. Delightful. Everybody makes it out just fine. It's it's fine. Everything's fine. And the epilogue is wonderful. It's, you know, a little bit in the future, right? A couple months or a year or or so. I think it's a year in the future. And he is back on the Sea of Thirst, running another cruise. It's the final one. It's the first time he's back, but it's also the last time. He's just here to effectively hand off this voyage and experience to another captain who's on board and as as it kind of wraps up he meets one of the passengers who survived it with him they're also back on board for this final sort of go they're writing a, a memoir of the experience etc and it again my hackles raised i was like oh man He's back on it. He's tempting fate. Like the ship's going to crash and he's going to die. This is where he finally gets his comeuppance. Rug's going to get pulled. And he's going to die. But no, no, it's just a lovely voyage. And him and this other passenger reminisce about the crazy times and catch up a bit. And that's it. And the book ends. He goes about his life. It's delightful. Utterly delightful. There's a happy ending. All, no caveats. It is. Wonderful. Another thing that was really well done that I wasn't quite expecting for the 60s was um, this sort of internal narrative of, of Pat Harris, which is centered around his affection and feelings for the stewardess, Sue Wilkins, 
who they've known for years. They've known each other for years. They've been friends. They've been kind of close. They've gone on lots of these trips. Like they've worked closely together, etc. Um, and he's always kind of been, we, we learned pretty early on. He's always kind of been like maybe a step beyond platonic where he's been a little flirty or he's always kind of liked her, you know, etc. And I had set up like, oh man, early sixties, you know, captain and stewardess. This might be a little bit not great, but again, Arthur C. Clarke conducted it with total delicacy and it wasn't a, like a power situation a power dynamic situation it turns out sue has also felt the same way about pat and she not only has a bunch of agency here but also uh kind of is the one in charge of this whole relationship which was nice to see for the for that time um she's like hey we're stranded on this stuff and like if we don't make it out i really want to let you know i like you we should have done something like and he's like yeah uh yeah actually i kind of feel the same but I'm not sure if that's just the stretch of the situation or, or what. Like, let's let's just focus on trying to get out of here, um, which was great. A, a, a cringe conversation and, and circumstance that I expected turned out to be not that. So another delightful thing about this book is the clearly 60s era tech and the clearly modernist tech, right? I've mentioned it before. The, the propulsion and tech on Selene, the ship, incredibly modern. How it's structured how spaceships work, all of that felt very futuristic and modern by today's standards. But there was also 1960 stuff where uh, there's a crate full of cigarettes that came along with the food rations in the, in the storage. That's not a thing. <laughs> there's also um, really delightful ideas from the 60s that you don't know were not futuristic at the time, right? Like, for example, nowadays, when... A tragedy would happen like this and they need to get the the ship's manifest they need to know who's on board and what's on board so they can start the rescue efforts right so the the people on base are like coordinating they're getting all this information we expect them to just have the manifest they can look up whatever from whatever screen etc no in this book um they use a telefax yep so most of the communications are handled via telefax which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a fax machine over very long distances. So when they needed the manifest for the ship, they actually had to wait for a printed copy to come from the telefax room into the main kind of like office room so they could overlook all the stuff that was on the ship and the people that were there and figure out how many, like how to do the rescue. Like it, delightfully 1960s, right? Adorable, <laughs> right? I loved it. it. It really made me feel like this novel what, like had a lot of character so that brings me to the criticisms. And I only really have one with this book. And it has to do with Tom Lawson. I feel like this book sometimes lingers too long on weird dead ends that don't really have any benefit to the narrative. Um, in an effort to kind of build out the world. But they don't go anywhere and they don't have any real purpose. So it feels like fluff. Tom Lawson is a, is a great example where... Lots of his story arc is, um, you know, relevant and important and, and all that stuff. But also a lot of it is just random tangents and like weird sort of narrative threads that don't go anywhere. We spend a lot of time with Tom Lawson doing 
basically nothing getting over his uh narcissism or explaining some of his backstory as he became a scientist and stuff like we just spend a lot of time on narrative threads that don't lead anywhere and don't really weave back together with the rest of the story so they feel out of place almost you know it's not too distracting to the actual narrative arc but again it's there and in such a small and tight narrative those little threads that don't go anywhere really stand out. But that's it. That was my only real criticism with this book. The rest of it was delightful. So that's the review, guys. Final thoughts here. I loved this book. It is not, you know, the name of the wind. It's not Rendezvous with Rama. It's not going to take my podium place of favorite novels. But I will absolutely continue to read this, particularly when I need a palate cleanser of just a happy story that is somewhat dramatic and interesting, but ultimately small. It's a small scope story, and I loved it a lot. And you should definitely read it. It's just good, clean, hard science fiction with no caveats. That's it. Arthur C. Clarke is great. This is a clear example of why he's a master, even in a somewhat forgotten work. Let me know what you guys think uh, of the show. I'd love to, to hear from you. You can email me at earmarks at punk.dev. You can also find me on Instagram at earmarkspod. Leave comments in this video for YouTube. I'd love to know some other out-of-print novels you guys might want me to check out. If you liked the show, tell your friends about it. They might also like this book. And if you end up picking up and reading this book, let me know. I definitely want to know. I would love to know if you guys read this book. And I'd love to know if you have suggestions for other out-of-print or hard-to-find novels that you want me to check out. If you like this show and you like what you hear, but you want a visual aspect, there is a YouTube version of this show. You can find it at youtube.com slash at earmarks. Treat yourself well.